Hey, good to see all of you. And um, boy, the um, we have to pray for the AC, okay? So make sure you do that. Um, but as you get older, you like warmer things, right? Like uh, I remember my parents would always drink hot water on hot days, and I'm kind of getting there. But anyways, it's so good to see all of you, and especially all the cool young people who are here. And um, uh, you know, we, we get to this section in chapter three, and there is so much here that I wanted to share, and the editing out some of it was really tough. Um, uh, you know, he starts by saying in Philippians 3, verse 1, and if you have your Bible, app, whatever it is, have it ready, okay? Um, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. He starts by saying this command to rejoice in the Lord. And I want us to ponder upon that just a little bit. Um, what do you rejoice in? Right? I want you to think about that. What really is good news for you? What do you rejoice in? What makes you so glad? I want you to think about that. Right? Um, you know, is it eating a good meal? Is it uh, doing well on a test? Or is it when you know your child does well on a test? Or if you get a promotion at work? You know, or you find money? Right? I mean, that's pretty uh, exciting. I found. You know, like five bucks in my pocket this morning. So I was pretty excited, but then it was my own money, um, right, which I had lost. So that was kind of sad, like I lost it, but I found it. Anyways, uh, um, what is it that brings you true joy? And uh, young people here, you know, less young people here, we're all young people here, right? Did you think about this? What is it that brings you joy? And you think back, let's go back um, five years ago, right? Let's all go back to when we were, you know, 11 years old, right? Uh, 10 or 11 years old, third or fourth grade. What brought you joy back then? Think about that. What was so exciting for you then? And what do you think about it now? And here he tells us to rejoice in the Lord. And this whole section of scripture, he is speaking against a group of people called the Judaizers. The Judaizers were those who held on to traditions and those who said, in order to become a real Christian, in order to be truly a Christian, you have to now add this on top of your faith. You have to now, and they were big on circumcision, you have to follow our traditions. And they were known as uh, Judaizers, and Paul here speaks against them. And he says that coming to Christ is not having faith in him plus doing something, plus being a straight-A student, plus doing well, plus having a fact. Coming to Christ is strictly by faith, and he wants to get that across to us. Look at verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He calls them, and I think this is fascinating. He calls them dogs. Now, dogs today, uh, how many of you are dog people? You love dogs. You have dogs. You know, your Facebook feed is filled with dog stuff, you know, puppies and, you know, um, guilty dogs, and you know, like, I love those things, right? You're dog people. So you, when you think of, oh, he calls them dogs, you think, well, it's kind of a compliment. I, some of you love your dogs more than your, you know, I'll leave it at that, right? Um, but you're like, oh, my dog listens better, doesn't talk back, I, I, you know. But really, back in those days, in, in certain parts of the world today, dogs were not kept as pets. Dogs just wandered around the streets. I remember um, Dr. Thomas, Chaco Thomas from India, who we support, when I had first brought him here, and I took him out to Seal Beach, and he lived in a rural part of India, 
And we're driving around Seal Beach, and I was showing him the stores um, and uh, just hanging out. And we saw a, a boutique where they had, um, they did um, haircuts and stuff, and they had food and snacks for dogs, right? And he asked me, he goes, oh, you know, what is that? I was tempted to imitate his um, accent and voice, but I'm not going to do that. I can't do it. But he says, what, what is that? So I explained, well, that's a boutique for dogs. And he, you know, he's a pretty serious man, right? I mean, he's a, you know, a head of a seminary, and he burst out laughing. He said that was the silliest thing he's ever seen. He goes, dogs, it's a dog restaurant? I go, yeah, it's kind of like a dog restaurant, and they get their hair cut, nails done. And he's like, whoa, you Americans are crazy. And he was laughing. And I thought about it. I go, yeah, we are crazy, right? When he says, this was the term that the Jews the Judaizers would use towards the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Because the dog, um, and one commentator says this, the Jews considered dogs to be the most despised and miserable of all creatures and used this to describe Gentiles. Uh, you know, you go to other parts of this world and there are dogs just roaming the street. What? And they're filthy. Um, they eat anything off the street. So they have disease, they're dirty, they don't have a home, they don't, they're not clean. And so you see, you say, get away, and you would kick the dog away. And now the Judaizers would look at the Gentiles and say, oh, look at them. They are filthy inside and out. But he uses the same term now, and he turns it on the ones who think they're religious, who think they have it all together, those who have accomplished much in this world. And he says, you are the dogs. You are the evildoers. Look out for them. And he calls them that. Why? Because they add on the requirement of coming to God. This is the number one thing. This is the ultimate thing you ought to rejoice in. And I'm not saying this to now be, you know, bore your life, to ruin your life, to upset you, to say, to give you a guilt trip if you enjoy playing games or a TV show. No, no. But to truly rejoice, what I want to say, is that it has to come from Christ. It ultimately comes from Jesus Christ. He truly is the one that brings us joy. So rejoice in him, not in these accomplishments. So um, it is Martin Luther who says this, that the most dangerous sin of all is the presumption of righteousness. Someone who feels like, I've done much, I'm a good citizen, I must be righteous. He says this is the greatest sin because... There's a lack of humility before God. Um, he talks about the insufficiency of good works before God. And as he talks about this, he needs an illustration. And the example he uses is himself. If you've been in the church, you know this. His resume of who he is. And just really quick, in verse 5, he describes himself and he says, He was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, this was their big hang-up. So he says, let me tell you that I did it by exactly by the book. The Jewish boy would be circumcised on the eighth day. It was a ceremonial uh, ritual. Some would do on the ninth, tenth, eleventh, but really the purest ones, the good ones, was on the eighth day. They did this on the eighth day. And so he says, I obey the law before I was even born. I obeyed this before I was even born, he says. And then he describes here in this way, uh, the people of, his, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisees. So he describes his heritage, the purity of his heritage. 
And he says it's a Hebrew, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now we know this term a little bit if you've been in the church. We describe Jesus as the King of Kings. And what? The Lord of Lords, right? The book in the, in the poetic part of the Bible is called the Song of Songs. It's a use of language to describe the uh, best, second to none would be the language that we would use. Second to none. And this is how he describes himself. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, to the law of Pharisee, and as to zeal, a persecutor of church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, so on. And then he describes in verse 8 how all of this is considered now rubbish. All of his good deeds are considered rubbish, right? Um, rubbish is a word that's a kind of a lighter translation of literally is dung, human excrement, right? It's, it's worthless. Um, one commentator goes a little deeper on this word, and this is something I learned. It's to describe food devoid of anything of value, no nutrition, right? Um, it's kind of like, um, you know, maybe like celery, right? Like celery is, is good for nothing, right? Especially because you need ranch, right? You can't eat celery without ranch or peanut butter. It's like good for nothing, right? So he's saying it's good for nothing. So this word was used to describe human excrement, but also it was used to describe after you have a feast, you collect all the leftovers, the burnt parts, the, the, the bones that are left off, off the ribs, and you gather all of it together. There's nothing of value. And he says, all of my goodness is nothing of value. You know, there's a, um, back in the 80s, there was a running back back in Mississippi, Philadelphia, Mississippi, named Marcus Dupree. Marcus Dupree was the best in the country. He was so good that he had broken uh, the record of, uh, of other people who had these long um, uh, records. One person's record he broke was Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker was looked upon back in the 80s as the natural, the phenom, the person who was so good. So he broke his rushing record. After he breaks these records in high school, obviously he is recruited by colleges. Every college across the country wants him, but those who really want him were Texas and Oklahoma. If you know anything about college football, big rivalry, right? Texas, Oklahoma, Texas, Oklahoma. To the point that their high school football coach talks about how he had had to field over 150 phone calls a day from colleges trying to get in somewhere with him. And initially, he now says he's going to go to Texas and play football. It was a big win for Texas. Oklahoma didn't want to give up till signing day, so what do they do? They send their assistant coach. He lives in the city where Dupree lived for six weeks to hound him. Now, don't you feel pretty wanted? Can you imagine, high schoolers, like if the dean of Harvard shows up at your house and says, I'm just going to move in. Please come to Harvard. Please. Like, don't go to UC Riverside. Please go to Harvard, right? <laughs> Don't, don't laugh about UC Riverside. It's a fine institution, a little warm there. Um, at least back in the day, it was really good. All right, so, um, uh, so that's what's happening. So he, he says, okay, and he commits. He changes his mind, and he goes to Oklahoma. First year is a pretty decent year. Uh, has a bowl game that's coming up. They had a break, Christmas break. He gains like 25 pounds. They lose the game. The coach blames him on TV. It's because of him. 
He gained 25 pounds. He could have ran, and we would have won, but because of him. And there starts his demise. Injury this. He transfers to another school, no-name school. He gets there, realizes he's ineligible for now two seasons. And so he has to sit out. He barely gets to play a little pro. He goes here, tries a little there. And the piece that was done on him um, was titled The Best That Never Was on ESPN. And I got to watch this. And it's a sad piece. He now is a part-time truck driver. He tried even wrestling for a little bit in some local wrestling group. And he sits in his same dilapidated old shack of a house where everything, the furniture, the outside, the interior, everything looked how you would imagine it must have been when he grew up there. And he's sitting there on this lazy boy sofa that looks like it's decades old. And he's sitting there and they pan at the end of the story to all of his trophies. And this little house that's probably half the size of this room, on the shelves, on the piano, on there is five, six deep of trophies from youth days to junior high, high school. Newspaper clippings is endless. Football sign, the game balls that was given to him for playing well at Oklahoma is all displayed there. But as they pan across, one thing they focus on, I think this, they had a purpose in this, was the amount of dust that these things have collected. Now let's go back. So when you were 10, did you win something? Did you win an award? Were you student of the month? Did you win some trophy? Did you get a trophy for just participating? Whatever it is, and you thought it was important. What do you do with it now? You don't know. It all eventually collects dust. It gets old really fast. And so he tells us to rejoice in the Lord because these things come and these things go quickly. And how he describes knowing Christ the joy he gets in Christ, he says in verse 8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The word here to know, it's the idea of having a personal relationship. Not just to know about someone. I know a, a young, younger brother, I knew him since he was in high school, and he is a, one of the top dealers in these kind of high-end luxury cars. Really good uh, you know, a Christian follower of Christ, humble guy, and I ran into him. He was in my youth group when I first started. I ran into him uh, about, about 10 years ago. So I haven't seen him in a long time. I, hey, good to see you. And we're talking, and how's it going? And um, he says, oh, I work for this car. I, so, you know, in my mind, I was like, oh, you sell cars. And I was like, that's cool. Um, but I wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like, wow. I was like, well, that's cool, you know. Um, and then he goes, yeah, I sell for clients. And, like, you know, he's like, Kobe Bryant's one of my customers and friends. And he kind of, you know, said he was his friend. And I was like, oh, come on, he's not your friend. Like, you know, you, you, know, you sold him a nice car. I'm like, yeah, I know Kobe, too. I know his stats. And, you know, like, I, I, I watched some of those things. I saw him live. And he goes, no, he goes, oh, you have friends. He was like, yeah, you know. And he showed me his phone. And in a really humble way, he wasn't trying to show off to me, but he was just like, oh, yeah, you know, God has blessed me. And he was showing me the names of these NBA players. He was, yeah, they call me. I just go, and I'll deliver and hang out and this. So I was not, now I'm impressed. I'm like, hey, you know, you need an assistant, you know? Or, um, and, you know, uh, he's going to Lakers games and, you know, taking pictures with the players after because he, he works with them. He helps them. He knows them. And he, here he says, 
And one commentator clearly talks about that this idea of knowing is when the knowy, right, and the known person have a relationship. It's not just about knowing about someone. It's not you saying, oh, I know about LeBron James. I know about Steph Curry. I seen them when he was in Davison. I saw him when he was in. No, it's not knowing about, and it's not the same thing with Christ. It's not knowing facts about him, winning a Bible quiz. I know about him, but to know him and to know him is salvation. And this is where he rejoices. And I want to wrap up our time with this idea of salvation. Um, and I want to clarify uh, this idea of salvation. There's three parts, and you see it in your notes too, but it's justification, sanctification, and glorification. The three parts of salvation. Justification, it means to be declared righteous. Imagine you go to a court, uh, whether it's something minor like getting a speeding ticket, and then the judge declares you innocent. And now you're free. That's kind of the concept here. To be declared righteous. To be positionally. So all of us are saints. If you put your faith in Christ, all of us are in Christ. We are headed for heaven. We have this position. Practically, do you mess up? Yeah. Do we struggle? Yeah. Do we sin? Yeah. But positionally, we're this way. And the judge declares, verse 9, 10, 11, this talks about this. And just stay with me here. It says, verse 9, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So it's not by law. It's not a righteousness I accrue by doing a lot of things. I went to missions, God. I donated, God. I prayed a lot, God. I read these books. It's by faith in Christ. And that's where salvation starts in justification. And part two is sanctification. Sanctification is now we're declared righteous, and it's the life we live. It's the process. And our lives are not just, just smooth like this, right? It's ups and downs and ups and downs. And some of us are here after a great week. Some of you are here after a tough week. Some of you are walking with God. He is so real to you. Some of you, it's been so long. And so it's ups and downs, ups and downs. It's the sanctification. And he describes that sanctification process in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings and become like him in his death. He's talking about, these are kind of sad things, right? If you think about this, to, to share in suffering and becoming like him. In death. He's talking about life here on earth. He's writing this from prison. And so as you are suffering, if bad things come your way as Christians, rejoice. This is God's tool. If hardships come your way, rejoice. If you are struggling yourself, still rejoice because it's going to get back up. And we will walk with him in, in the future. And the last part is glorification. Before we get there, there's uh, Russ Moore. Dr. Russell Moore um, talks about his story of adopting two boys from a Russian orphanage in his book, Adopted for Life. Um, and uh, Russell Moore, he talks about that. And I just want to read an excerpt. And I think it explains they're saved out of this orphanage. They're given a new name. They're going to head back home. They're going to go to the new home with a new identity. These kids still want to go back. And once they get there, the dad and mom know what it's going to be like, how good it's going to be. The kids at this point are afraid. They don't know. And this is what he says. 
Uh, my wife and I walked out of a Russian orphanage with two little one, one-year-old boys. Suddenly, for the first time, I was a father and she was a mother. Suddenly, little Maxim was now Benjamin Moore, and little Sergei was Timothy Moore. Everything changed for all of us, for life. And he talks about the experience. He says, we dressed the boys in outfits our parents had bought for them. We nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked out into the sunlight to the terror of these two boys. They'd never seen the sun. They've never felt the wind. They've never heard the sound of a car door slamming or had the sensation of being carried along at 100 miles an hour down a road. I noticed that they were shaking and reaching back to the orphanage in the distance. I whispered to Timothy, that place is a pit. If only you knew what was waiting for you, a home with a mommy and a daddy who love you, grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and playdates play and uh, McDonald's Happy Meals, right? But all they knew was the orphanage. It was squalid, but they never had no other reference point. It was home. And he talks about the process. They come home, they stopped hiding food in their high chair for down the line. Uh, they weren't as jumpy, they felt comfortable. That's the process of us going home. And as we now get used to this, and the culmination is what we call, theologians call glorification. And he says here in verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the death from, uh, attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the future. This is our ultimate de uh, destination. Resurrection from the dead, heaven, that he thinks of salvation. So salvation has this declaration from God, you're righteous. It has a sanctification process. We're still figuring it out, we're trying. And we're gonna, it's going to be the not final culmination we get there. And how wonderful that will be. I want to encourage us to have this kind of vision for your life. You know, uh, a couple weeks ago, we, our church hosted a pastor's retreat synergy. And we had about 30 pastors come. And we talked about leadership and church and so on. Something we do to bless the local church around. Um, uh, we had one of the speakers, Pastor Larry Osborne, uh, pretty famous amongst pastor circles, right? And, and books out, and he's done ministry at big church in Oceanside. And uh, so he came and shared with us. Um, he's almost 70 years old. And the thought he shared with us, he was talking about raising kids. And obviously he has grand, he's a grandfather, and he's been through what we are experiencing. And he kept telling one of the brothers, as his uh, question was raised in our discussion, he says, he goes, have a vision for your child when he turns 30. Imagine him turning 30 and live your life and do your schedule to now meet that need. Don't, don't be so short-sighted. And isn't this true? If, if for our own lives and those of you who are parents for your kids' lives, don't we often sell ourselves so short that sometimes all we think about is just finishing this project. If I can just get my kid into this school, if they can just get into this program, if they can just go, some people are so short-sighted. And some of us have parents like this. If you can just get to college, my work is done. It's just beginning. And I want to give you 
uh, a challenge to have a longer vision for your life. Don't just think, boy, if I can just get by this project, if I can get this promotion, if I can make it into this high school, if I can get accepted into GATE or this program, it will all be trophies collecting dust one day that no one else will be caring about. But would you have a vision? Think long-term for the rest of your life. Moms and dads here, would you think about your kids one day walking as grown-ups with the Lord, raising children who love the Lord versus just seeking success and pleasure? And we have to train them now. And for those of us, for all of us here, could you just not think about the vacation that's to come and the weekend that's to come, but to think about the ultimate rest we'll have with Christ and how I can get there. And what does that do? That gives us now the reason to rejoice. Hard times will come all our ways. Disappointments will come all to all of us. But it's okay. I can rejoice because I know where I'm headed. I'll be out of control of my life. And you all feel this. You lack control. I want this to happen. It's not happening the way that I want it to. The people are showing up late. They're not doing this. It's okay because we have a destination. And my prayer for us is that we would be people filled with joy, not just for the simple little trophies we're going to get and we're going to put aside, but really for the crown that is imperishable that Jesus will give us when we get to heaven. Think long term. And would you live in this way? I'm so glad we made it through this hot room, right? Thank you so much. I mean, what a wonderful uh, time we had together. But with that thought, let's close in prayer, could we? Lord, we are so grateful that we can rejoice regardless of the trophies we get in this world, that we can rejoice uh, regardless of what we accomplish here or not. So God, um, remind us of that daily. Some of us, God, today, we really needed to hear this message and help us to live a life with a vision for you long-term, eternity, a vision that looks that far ahead. Uh, bless everyone here. Bless all the families here. Bless our youth here. God, as they are in such a pressure-packed uh, little world, God, would you help them to develop their own faith to look to you, that they are worthy not because of what they achieve, but because of how you, how you created them and saved them. So, God, would you bless them? Thank you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.